Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. What if I told you that your life was like the Truman Show? (laughs) Everything and everyone is staged around you. Situations are being manufactured to see how you will respond and And those responses are being documented and for millions of faithful viewers to analyze and pick apart. That'd be unnerving, right? (laughs) Can you imagine? Every single day and every single moment, landmines everywhere from producers and the entire world is watching you to see how you will respond. And worst of all, if you remember the movie, you have no idea that it's happening. But what would happen if you could somehow find out that everything that you face comes from somewhere, that the world around you just isn't some random collection of people bumping into each other, would that help reframe and reorient the way you view the various circumstances that come to you, whether joyful or hard circumstances? Would that inform how you respond to them and how you would behave in the midst of them? And what if you knew the end, and could see the ultimate rewards that lie ahead. Like Pastor Lauren said last week so well, knowing the end from the beginning should have a regulating effect on our emotions and our actions. That's good. And the Lord, in his kindness to us, through his servant James, gives us such a perspective. And as he has the entire letter thus far, he's been acknowledging us exactly where we are in the busyness and trials of life, exactly where we are Monday through Saturday. See, the Christian life is not just one of constant, blissful, mountaintop experience, but made up of hills and valleys and plateaus and deserts and ravines that need courage to cross. It's not the perfectly staged coastal town of the Truman Show, but the battleground where war is waged against our own sin and desires. That's the glory of the entire word of God, but particularly in this letter of James. It locates us in the everyday of life, and it gives us perspective and, and understanding for all the things that I do experience, and then calls me to respond. What kind of people ought we to be? How ought we to respond when the trials of various kinds do come? How do we remain steadfast? Those are the questions we return to in our text today. And in it, we find a sober reality and a glorious reward promise. So, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand, please, as I read James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, 
my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you. We need your spirit to open our eyes and to see all that you have for us in your word. Would you bless the preaching of your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So here in verse 12, James pivots back. Having discussed wisdom and faith, seasons of poverty and prosperity, he returns now to focus on the topic that he opened the letter with, trials and suffering. Only now he begins to draw distinctions. What was above described as trials of various kinds, which is an intentionally broad stroke, he now unpacks with nuance. We must tread carefully here. Of all that's going on in this passage, James seems to be drawing a, a contrast between two distinct types of trials, namely testings and temptations. These twin trials may look similar, but they have different sources. They call for different responses and ultimately promise two completely and totally different outcomes. And it's in these two categories, the tests and temptations, that we begin to make sense of the various ways that we are tried in our walk of life. And it is uniquely in how we respond to these hard circumstances, regardless of their source, that we begin to understand ourselves and the need, our need, for the gospel. So, so as we walk through this passage, this, this glorious passage, we're, we're going to compare and contrast those two things, testings and temptations. We're going to look at their roots, we're going to look at our responses, and ultimately we're going to look at the rewards. So first, testing and temptations, the roots. Verse 12 begins by congratulating all those who face trials that test their faith and have remained standing, right? Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And and it's that word, that, that word test, that's important to remember. It's the same Greek word used back at the beginning of the book in verses two and three, where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the word being used here for testing, it's meant to convey this approval that can only come from putting pressure on something, right? Trying it out to see if it's genuine or not, like a bridge that's been tested and approved for its structural integrity, or an aircraft where every rivet and bolt and electrical system has been tried and tested and signed off on, thankfully, giving it the green light to carry millions of people around the world 30,000 feet up in the sky. It's incredible. There is a type of assurance and security that comes from something that has been tested and approved. Paul communicates this idea to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, there's that word, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How will you do with the test of handling the word, Timothy? You must rightly handle it so that you have no need to be ashamed, but rather approved. And notice who it is 
Timothy is to report to. Who is it handing out these tests? God himself. Under his divine sovereignty, all things ultimately come from God, the creator and sustainer of all things. This is, this is tricky, but remember Job 1, right? In the divine throne room, where Satan, the ultimate tempter, must come into God's presence in order to be given permission that he needs to carry out and inflict the horrible trials that are brought on Job. Satan is the evil actor, but all done under the divine supervision of the Almighty for the testing and trying of Job's faith. Or think again of Matthew, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Right? Immediately after his baptism, Matthew records this in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that had just descended on him in his baptism that now leads him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. So Scripture repeatedly communicates that when we face trials, our faith is tested. And it's ultimately being tested by God to see what our faith is made out of. It is a kindness of God, a refining process that exposes our weakness. It, it, it shows us the gaps in our discipleship, laying us bare before God who knows all things and reveals to each of us where the gospel needs to be applied. Of course, the scene James most likely has in mind when discussing the testing of our faith under trial is likely the very first story where the first man and the first woman were tested and failed miserably. The test was simple. Would they obey the simple command to not eat of the, fr the fruit of the tree? Would they trust God that he was good and intended all things for their good? And would they trust that he would provide everything that they need? As we know, epic cosmic failure. One final example of God's word, from God's word of the Lord testing his people, right? Abraham and Isaac. After all the tremendous promises God has made, God made to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations and his descendants would be more numerous than the stars. He would be, the, even then, and then the miraculous provision of those promises seen in the birth of his son Isaac when he and Sarah were at such an old age. And now out of nowhere, God commands the unthinkable. Genesis 22 verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall show you. Can you imagine? Literally every parent's worst nightmare, and it clearly coming from the very hand of God. James is clear that this testing, this testing is from God, and it serves a purpose to reveal our hearts and assess the integrity of our faith. John Calvin commenting on this passage, he makes the clear distinction between tests from God and evil temptations this way. He said, God tries us as to what we are by laying before us an occasion by which our hearts are made known. But to draw out what is hid in our hearts is a far different thing from inwardly alluring our hearts by wicked lusts. So, the root and origin of 
and source of testing, that which examines and assesses our faith, those come from God. But James makes, James makes a, a sharp distinction in verse 13 when he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I mean, you can just, you can hear the tone of James's voice just saying, do not blame God for your temptations. Well, what are temptations, and how are they different from testing? The Greek word used here for temptations is different than the one used earlier in testing. To, to be tempted is to be enticed by sin for sin. Temptations are done by evildoers for the purpose of tripping up the feet of the Christian. Again, think of the garden scene, right? The, the Lord, he tested the man and his wife by placing the tree in the garden, commanding them not to eat it to see how would they respond and would they obey by faith. Enter the serpent, that crafty serpent. Of course, happening under the sovereignty of God whose aim was to ruin this perfect garden. Or think again of Matthew 4, when the Spirit of God led Jesus out of the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by being tempted by the devil himself. Verse 14, James makes clear the origin of all temptations. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation finds its origin in sin, both external and and internal. You can, you can hear and understand this fishing metaphor, right? Sin, the demonic, false idols, they, they put the bait out before us, dangling out in front of us, enticing us, luring us in. We might not want it. We didn't ask for it. But there it is, promising to satisfy you, promising to complete you, and just asking you to take it. And in our hyper-sexualized age, temptation to sexualize sin or sexual sin seems to, be, seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? Someone who struggles with lust can genuinely say, there are lewd images everywhere, and I did not ask for them. True. But James will not let us off the hook that easily. The bait is put before us. But we take that bait because we desire it. And those desires are ours. We are lured and enticed by our own desires. These are inordinate desires that flow from a corrupt and sinful nature, but they are ours nonetheless. Sin affects not only the things we do, but the things we, we desire as well. Anyone who is tempted to sin, which, which is every single person in this room, right? We don't ask to be tempted. So then how are we culpable? It's like there's a sting operation being run on us all the time. Like Truman, is everything just staged and stacked against us? But James is clear. He is crystal clear that although all things sovereignly come from God, he is not to be blamed for our sin. Calvin again puts it this way. He says, this warning to not blame God, it's very necessary. For nothing is more common among men than to transfer to another the blame of the evils they commit. And they then especially seem to free themselves when they ascribe it to God himself. If you remember back to the garden, when, when, the, when God finally confronts Adam, remember what he says? The woman you gave me made me do it. 
This kind of evasion we constantly imitate, delivered down to us as it were from the first man. For this reason, James calls us to confess for our own guilt and not to implicate God as though he compelled us to sin. So these distinctions, these are, these are fine, and maybe, maybe this can all feel like semantics, but the difference is vital. Is God responsible, culpable for the evil that we face, or are we? When we face temptations, which is every single day, can we rightly look up to the heavens and say, this is your fault, you made me do this, you made me this way. James just says for you, no. So the root of our temptations come from sin, our sin. And the source of testings of our faith, we experience all these opportunities to reveal that which is already in us are from the Lord. But what about how we respond to these circumstances. That's the second thing. Next, we'll look at the responses. Now, some of you may not know this about me, but in college, I was heavily involved in theater, and I loved acting. I did a lot of musical theater, did a lot of plays, and all that that was involved in. One of, the, one of my favorite plays that I was involved in, uh, that I was in, was Jane Austen's classic Pride and Prejudice. And a common question I would get from my friends and those who came to see the play, they, they saw us rattle off these super long monologues and they would ask things like, how on earth can you memorize all that, all those lines? Like, I could never do that. And my answer to them really wasn't any great secret to memorizing lines. Those of you who have memorized scripture, you know the secret to memorizing, right? You just do it a bunch. <laughs> you just repeat. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And I would begin every time I got a script by just saying my lines over and over and over again just to get them into my, into my bones. Some actors, they would, they would write out the lines several times. Whatever's needed just to get it into your system, you do, you do it. But then, as the rehearsal process continued, this strange phenomenon would happen where actors would begin to say their lines the same way over and over again. And so you could begin to anticipate what the next line would be. In other words, Lines in conversations, they would, they, they would make sense. They would go together. But how do you move from memorizing lines, which anybody can do, to acting? Well, <laughs> the next question I would ask is, okay, I know the lines this character would say. I know how they would act, but I need to figure out why he is saying them. What's this character's motivation? Is it pride or love or selfishness or anger or jealousy or anything else? Then I would just simply try to communicate that and embody that motive and how I delivered the lines and I'd already memorized. And voila, right? The, the, the magic of acting. But we are all characters in a story. Not like Truman, where everything's staged, but we are characters. We are not just bodies or robots that simply say and do things, but we do and say the things that we do because we are certain kind of characters. How we react to various circumstances, all these various trials of life is wholly dependent on the type of people that we are. And then the reality is, when it comes to our self-awareness, we are often self-deceived, right? In, in every story, we, we just naturally like to cast ourselves as the hero, right? Like the Mr. Darcy of the story, when in, in reality, we may be more like a Mr. Wickham deceptive and nefarious, using our charm and charisma to insert ourselves into the lives of others for our own benefits. Or, more likely, we're a Mr. Collins, awkward and aloof, bumbling through life, unaware how we are perceived. Our responses in every circumstance is a good indicator of the type of person 
that we are. As we said, we do the things we do because we desire them. Regardless of the source or origin of the trials we face, how we respond reveals what's already there. James describes the relationship between the temptations we face and our responses in verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The metaphor James employs here is that of human development, right? Conception, birth, growth. That's powerful. That connection, the connection between the sinful actions we commit, regardless of the scale and scope of those actions, and our sinful desires is like the connection between you now and you when you were in the womb. Those are, those are not two different people, but rather the same you at different stages of development. Is there, anything, is there any more organic link in this world than that? Jesus uses a different metaphor, but he makes the same point in Luke chapter 6, where he says, For no good fr- tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruits. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You will know a tree by its fruit. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Apple trees produce apples, not oranges. There is no compartmentalizing our actions and our desires. They are organically and intrinsically linked. You cannot divide the sin from the sinner. Sinful people do sinful things. And the diagnosis that James gives us is that when we respond to the circumstances of life with sin, that's the fruit of our hearts being revealed. Thus the nature of trials reveal who we really are. So the circumstance comes, right? And we often respond with the sin in our hearts. Like finances are hard, like Lauren preached last week, causing us to doubt the providence of God in our lives. The sudden death of a loved one causes us to doubt the goodness and love of God. The suffering we experience in our struggle just to get by and the ease by which the wicked just seem to succeed causes us to doubt the justice of God. Doug Moo summarizes it well by saying, testing almost always includes temptation to sin. And temptation itself is a test. Every circumstance regardless of its root, is an opportunity, however, to remain steadfast. And James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is warning you that in the midst of the heat of your trials, your, your emotions are a check engine light for the state of your heart. And if you find yourself lashing out or responding in sinful ways, trace that back to the source, which James says is you, in your heart. So how do we change? What hope is there? Well, James doesn't just leave us in the midst of our storm, but shows us the end of the road where temptations and testings find their conclusions. Number three, the rewards. The stakes could not be higher. James spells out for us the final destination of the road set before. Life or death. Listen to the warning again in verse 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. If you take that bait, you feed that beast, if you don't cut it off and see it for what it is, you are walking a path that goes to death. Temptations are everywhere, James says, so tread carefully. Your very life is at stake. Temptations offer, they offer satisfaction, but it is a trap. Sin cannot satisfy the desire of your heart. And haven't we all experienced that reality? Why do we return again and again? Don't don't fall for it, James says. Be like Odysseus when he hears the siren call and tie yourself to the mast of your ship and just keep sailing. The book of James is often seen, has been understood as the New Testament version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs because of the wisdom involved. James likely knew the book of Proverbs well and thus wrote for us a kind of guidebook to the Christian life that has many echoes to the book of Proverbs. And Solomon knew the dangers of temptation well. Listen to the warning he gives to his son concerning the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. This is worth reading in full. For at the window of my house I've looked through my lattice I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband's not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him so... At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is serious. Notice the adulterous woman, she didn't didn't break into the young man's house kidnap him and force him to come away with him. No, he was just strolling about the city at night near her house. Solomon, Solomon's right to characterize him as lacking sense. And when she confronts him, he is seduced, persuaded, and on his own free will, he follows her, not knowing that he's a dead man walking. What that boy needed in that moment was for someone who loved him enough to say, Don't go near it. Don't go out there. 
Don't go with her. No matter, no matter what she promises, don't take that bait. Just flee in the other direction. That's what James is doing for you and for me. But death is not the only thing promised here. Don't miss the great promise James gives at the beginning of this section, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sin and temptation, while falsely offering satisfaction, lead to death in the grave. But steadfastness under trial, standing up in the midst of suffering, clinging to all that God has promised for you by faith, trusting the promises of God, that leads to the glorious crown of life. Life, that's what's promised. And where does that come from? From the same place all good and perfect gifts come from. They come from God. James announces as he did back in verse 5 when he exhorted those who lack wisdom to ask God that any good gift we receive, anything that is good, comes to us from God. And he does not change. He will always give good gifts. And what is it that we need more than anything? If our fruit comes from the sinful root that we all have, we cannot just replace the fruit. Just cut away our apples and and tape oranges to the branches and behold, we have an orange tree. No, behavior modification will not do here. It will not receive the crown of life. What we need is a new tree. We need our heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh. We need new desires. Our sinful desires are at war within us. Paul describes this this dilemma and proclaims the solution beautifully in Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The greatest gift, my friends, the greatest gift God has given you is not a reprieve from hard circumstances or an easy life or success or riches. The greatest gift he has given you is the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, in whom you have received grace upon grace upon grace, new desires that long to obey, new longings that yearn for more of his spirit and a fixed focus on the great reward, the crown of life, which can only be received by the steadfast and the faithful, which in themselves are gifts from God. Here's what I believe James has been working towards in this entire passage. In Christ, we receive new hearts and new desires that can resist temptation no matter the circumstance, and pass the test by faith to receive the crown of life. The reality is that this is all from God and his gracious giving and is expressed, however, though, in our ordinary, everyday life. That's where 99% of of the fight of faith takes place. The fight against our temptations of sin, it takes place in the everyday, in the ordinary. Oswald Chambers says it this way, discipleship is built entirely on the supernatural grace of God. Walking on water is easy to somebody with impulsive boldness, but walking on dry land 
as a disciple of Jesus Christ is something altogether different. Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, but he followed him at a distance on dry land. We do not need the grace of God to withstand crises. Human nature and pride are sufficient for, for us to face the stress and strain magnificently, but it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours of every day as a saint, going through drudgery and living an ordinary, unnoticed, ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. It is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people. And that is not learned in five minutes. Where is it learned? Where is it learned? It's learned in Christ. It is Christ, the God-man who was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet he did not take the bait. He withstood every test, every trial, every temptation, and he declared, not my will, but yours. And thus secured for each of us the ability now to do what he did, what Adam and Israel failed to do, to resist temptation, to remain steadfast under trial. The ability to be exceptional in the ordinary. The miracle of regeneration means that you do not need to remain that sinful character. You, by God's grace, can become a new character in the great drama of redemption. And that character, James says, that's a blessed character. That man is blessed. So do you know him? Do you see Christ? Do you thank God in the midst of your suffering that you do not walk alone, but have received the greatest gift of all, Christ Jesus our Lord, whose, whose body was broken for you, whose blood shed for you? Paul summarizes it finally this way in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, because of all of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of King Jesus, you can have victory over your sin. So hold fast as he holds fast to you and cling to him who has defeated death and then receive the crown of life. Let's pray. God, this all just seems too much. Who, who is sufficient for this exceptional life in the ordinary? Who, who, who can fight off all the temptations we face You have given us such a gift, given us Christ who, in whom we have received all that we need. And you do not command 
to us anything that you have not made provision for in Christ. So God, would you continue to give good gifts to your people? Give us new desires. Give us new longings. Help us to see Jesus there on the cross, broken and bleeding for us. And that he rose, defeating sin and death. Seated now, putting all enemies under his feet. Thank you, God, for all that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus. It is his holy name we pray. Amen.